Welcome to Zurich's Risk Insights series on coronavirus, what businesses need to know now. Hi, I'm Renee Koa from Zurich, North America. COVID-19 vaccines are rolling out across the country. As the demand for vaccines continues to grow, so will the need for temporary vaccination sites to serve the public. Private property owners will be enlisted to help the cause, but what do they need to consider before they accept? Joining us today is Christopher Garibrand, Senior Principal Risk Engineer at the Risk Engineering Technical Center in charge of liability at Zurich, North America. He holds a doctorate in organization development at Benedictine University. Chris is the lead author of an in-depth document, Temporary COVID-19 Vaccination Sites, Risk Mitigation. It's loaded with tips for private property owners that may want to temporarily turn their facilities into public-private sponsored COVID-19 vaccination sites. He's here to share a few risk mitigation issues for any company that wants to be a good corporate citizen. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, getting everyone vaccinated is crucial in fighting COVID-19. There are millions of people who will be getting in line for shots. And that's what's fueling the need for these temporary vaccination sites, right? That's true. Uh, according to the CDC, the goal is to create herd immunity, meaning through vaccination or infection, enough people become immune to a disease to make it spread unlikely. Now, can you explain the kind of sites we're talking about? You're referring to businesses that are transforming facilities from their original purpose, maybe making widgets or hosting sporting events, to becoming temporary public health venues, right? This is as opposed to pharmacies or clinics already set up for this kind of role. That's correct. So the types of facilities uh, are opening up because they have the open space. This includes large office spaces, sports stadiums, malls, amusement parks, and are being incorporated as part of a public-private engagement for temporary use as vaccination sites. And by public-private, uh, we're talking about the private property owner working with a lot of different groups, right? They're not being asked to go this to go it alone, I hope. No, uh, doing this successfully depends upon coordination, collaboration among the local and state public health departments, healthcare organizations, logistics providers, venue operations, and community leaders. So Chris, what needs to be factored in when a facility is being considered? What makes it suitable for this type of role? Well, first we uh, ask that they evaluate possible risks and exposures, things like protection, security, hygiene risks, social distancing, sort of a one way in, one way out of the facility. So from a traffic standpoint of pedestrians, you want to be able to uh, accommodate that. And then to be mindful of other mitigation actions, such as uh, premises loss liability through slip trips and falls, and then also traffic controls for vehicles. Are there enough access roads? Is there sufficient parking? That kind of thing. Now, every facility is going to have its unique challenges. But are there some considerations that apply to any facility adapting itself for this service? And Chris, I also wanted to note that your paper um, distinguishes between walk-in sites and drive-through. So what are some of the considerations for walk-in sites 
understanding that some of these will also apply for the drive-through sites. Sure. So the ability to maintain social distancing throughout the process, uh, considering all the touch points from entering the building to getting the shot to leaving after receiving the vaccine. One area that we're concerned with is uh, that chairs should be made available for persons waiting to be vaccinated and that they should be sanitized before and between each occupant. Uh, vaccination stations will require room for tables for supplies and seating for providers as well as vaccine recipients. For large open areas, the stations should be enclosed by portable screens to provide uh, privacy during vaccination. And then uh, a designated area for vaccine preparation by medical staff, uh, and then a post-vaccination observation area with seating and uh, a private area behind portable screens for anybody that experiences adverse uh, effects from a vaccination, which which may be likely, uh, and then an exit that's separate from the venue entrance. Now, what about the drive-through operations? What would um, distinguish them and what do they need to consider? So sure, um, the drive-through areas are, need to follow basically the same type of, of process where they have the same uh, distinction of a place where you can park, you know, so consider that when receiving a vaccination that we ask the uh, the occupant of the vehicle to put it in park maybe turn off the vehicle so chris <laughs> chris i gotta interrupt you here okay. i would think that would be absolutely assumed <laughs> that you would put your car in park but not so well you you might like to think that but um sometimes that's not so obvious so you know, this is one that we really feel very strongly about and want to make certain that people that are receiving a, a shot in the arm, so to speak, may react and, uh, you know, as such, uh, put their foot on the gas pedal. And we want to avoid oh, any type of injuries from that. Great point. Great point. So now we're going to uh, move to this position you mentioned in the article called an infection mitigation coordinator. It sounds like this person is a bridge between the facility owner's responsibility and things that the healthcare organization needs to be mindful of. Can you elaborate on this role? Sure. Uh, they fill a lot of important roles, but they need to have appropriate medical and risk management knowledge. You know, some of these responsibilities may include communicating and helping uh, the public entity with uh, health guidelines. Uh, working with clinical and other venue operators to develop and implement uh, event health plans, uh, verifying that existing safety plans are modified for compatibility with new health plans, and then to help create staff training that applies to current information about hazards, infection control measures, including social distancing, hand washing, sanitizing gel uh, dispensers, temperature checking, and disinfecting high-touch surfaces. Uh, we, we'd also suggest that they determine in conjunction with the venue or event organizer if a staff or vaccine recipient, when they may safely enter uh, the event space when there is a health concern. Okay. Now, your article addresses so many of the factors that need to be considered from the healthcare perspective by including uh, protocols established by the CDC and other relevant public health organizations. But for this podcast, I really want to focus on the considerations from a property protection standpoint 
And one issue that caught my eye when I read your article, and I'll be honest, it was not something I would think of. Let's talk about the garbage. So sure, housekeeping is is critical and uh, just very important to establishing uh, a hygienic facility. Specifically, how do you manage the different kinds of waste that may be generated at the site? So for ordinary trash, you need to provide non-medical waste receptacles for use by visitors. You could expect that individuals would bring in uh, a beverage or perhaps you know, something to eat. You want to be able to provide staff the ability to collect non-medical waste deposited in trash receptacles and then store non-medical waste removed from the receptacles following established practices. The other area of concern is biohazard waste. So the plans for biohazardous waste receptacles to collect vaccination-related waste in the injection area. Uh, so from a bloodborne pathogens standpoint, this is certainly follows that guideline uh, that OSHA provides us, but also to verify plans for storage of biohazardous waste removed from the injection area, sort of a chain of command of where these things are going and where they're headed, and then to verify uh, the plans for daily removal and documentation of the biohazardous waste. Chris, you also talked about sharps or needles, and I'm guessing this is part of the biohazardous waste, uh, right? Absolutely. So you would have to have a separate receptacle marked as such. You know, it's usually a red container where following any vaccination, the needle can be placed or the syringe can be placed inside of there to protect the individuals administering the vaccination. Okay. Now, you also uh, discussed uh, the need to establish smoking policies, and it's a little more complicated than just putting up a no smoking sign. Could you explain why that is? Sure. So we, we recognize that, that smoking is, is one that may irritate people. But it, beyond that, from a property protection standpoint, it's essential that we don't see smoking materials as an ignition source get into uh, these venues. And while it might be uh, more or less understood, some people may stretch that that risk and and go ahead and, and start smoking. So we, we just want to re-emphasize that, uh, even though it may seem uh, rather obvious. Would this apply also if they're outside the facility? I, I believe so. And and for this reason, you know, it's it's the personal space that needs to be maintained and individuals that are smoking in line may cause others to be irritated by that. And there, there are varying degrees of abilities for individuals or disabilities, and we want to accommodate people in a comfortable and safe way. That makes sense. Now let's talk about the utilities, and that is another thing I didn't consider. Why the demands for lights and electricity be different because it's now a vaccination site. So as you're standing up these sites, you're actually changing the occupancy. Uh, and as such, you may have increased electrical demands. And so the utilities should be evaluated by a qualified electrician to establish that whatever additional sources uh, are being brought into the facility can be accommodated. You don't want to have too many lights that are going on without having the, the load on the electrical system evaluated. Uh, also would be of concern is temporary electronics such as space heaters. We want to eliminate those actually and not have them come into the facility. 
for obvious reasons of the fire hazard that can be generated from it. Also, um, a very obvious point that didn't occur to me is that there has to be enough light for the uh, health staff administering vaccines. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be tough enough in in the best of situations and in these temporary uh, facilities, individuals are going to need that lighting so it's suitable so they can see what they're doing and they could administer uh, the the vaccine and observe individuals, you know, for any signs of uh, counterindication from the vaccination itself. Will there be a, a lot of need for refrigerators? We talked briefly about that because some of these vaccines have to be stored in such cold temperatures. Most of the providers that are coming in through the county and or health department uh, will be providing their own facility for uh, cold storage. Uh, a lot of that might be uh, dry ice, uh, CO2 and so forth, but there are different considerations uh, to make certain that it's safely monitored and maintained so that you don't have a release of the of the carbon dioxide, uh, which could be, you know, detrimental to uh, individuals in the, in the facility. Okay. Now, I'm going back to the uh, people, and that's um, the emergency response team. These are the employees trained to handle emergency situations for a given facility. So as I understand it, they might have to take on additional duties for a vaccination site. And I wondered what kinds of things need to be on a company's radar when it comes to the ERT team. Sure, there's actually a couple of areas that I, I think that they should consider. One is uh, the care for individuals that are being vaccinated. Uh, if there are any uh, reactions to the vaccine itself, you want somebody that has emergency medical training that can uh, certainly address the issue and or transport the individual to a hospital uh, if it's a medical emergency. Uh, otherwise, individuals would need to know how to administer uh, EpiPens for reactions that, that could occur. Uh, but the, the second part of this is where you have these vaccination sites being stood up, there is the possibility of uh, civil disturbance that could occur from that. And so that's why we ask that you coordinate with the local police department, with your local emergency planning committee, certainly with the fire department, and make certain that the uh, surrounding area is secure for pedestrian traffic as well as for uh, vehicle traffic. Uh, we really want to protect individuals and avoid any type of uh, disturbances that could occur. Okay, and um, another type of risk, which most risk managers are very familiar with, is slip, trip, and fall. When a facility switches gears to become a vaccination site, what should property owners be thinking about when it comes to this? So, yeah, absolutely. So uh, they should be thinking about the varying ages and levels of disabilities of individuals that are going to be entering into the facility. Uh, you have to evaluate key exposure risks that may be present and implement controls to help reduce frequency and uh, severity likelihoods. Uh, consider the surface composition of the floor or exterior walking surfaces. When possible, choose areas, rooms, and facilities with surfaces with high slip resistance. 
the more slip resistance the walking surface, generally the lower exposure to a slip, trip, or fall incident. If you're placing stickers on the floor, make certain the stickers themselves, while intended for designating physical distancing, make certain that the stickers themselves don't increase uh, the slipperiness of the floor surface or uh, become peeled up and you start tracking along with the with the material itself or the stickiness of the of the sticker. Adequate visibility is really important. So lighting levels should be uh, able to alert people to the types of floor surfaces they're walking on and the signage. Uh, this is particularly important given the potential age demographics I mentioned. Uh, if stairways are present, are present uh, Step geometry needs to uh, be uniform to uh, prevent missteps. In fact, we would prefer that there not be a whole lot of use of uh, steps in general. Uh, but if they are and you can't minimize them, make certain that you have adequate handrails uh, that are uniform around stair corners and are secure and easily grasped. If you have escalators and elevators, make certain that you have those considered too and that you have uh, a limited number of passengers on, on each. Good points. Now, uh, since we represent an insurance company, um, it's important to ensure the venue has appropriate insurance coverage for this temporary use, right? And I also wanted to ask you if there are other insurance factors to consider. Well, yes, uh, risk transfer is an important part of this process to make certain that uh, uh, insured customer is named an additional insured on part of uh, the county or whoever is the public entity that's going to uh, sponsor the event wherever possible. Um, other considerations, uh, make certain that the clinical management have oversight uh, and confirm that the managing clinical provider has adequate liability insurance that covers offsite immunizations. That's pretty important, uh, again, from a risk transfer standpoint. And then verify the clinical management has adequate general liability coverage. You know, certainly we want to minimize premises losses related to the slip trips and falls we mentioned. And then individual policies, policies for clinical staff or pharmacists may be advisable in addition to coverage through a company policy. The coverage minimums should be in line with your company or with the, the risk management uh, policies or with uh, in-house legal counsel uh, sponsored at the, at the customer's level. And speaking of legal counsel, you recommend that um, there be conversations between the company with its in-house legal advisors, correct? That is absolutely correct. They need to review any types of letters of agreement or management uh, notice of, of commonality. You know, I'm seeing that they're being named many different things, but it, it could be uh, construed as an agreement and that you need to be very careful about uh, managing, certainly with legal counsel's advice. Great. Hey, Chris, before we conclude, is there anything else you wanted to add? I, I think we pretty well covered it. Again, it, it, it's pretty straightforward uh, you know, we, we like the fact that people are standing these things up. We think it's a, a great community effort. Chris, thanks so much for joining us and sharing this information. Again, there are so many more insights for private property owners in the Risk Topic article, which listeners will find on our website. Go to coronavirus, the path forward at zurichna.com slash COVID-19. 
On behalf of everyone at Zurich, thanks for listening. Stay healthy and be safe. The information in this audio recording was compiled from sources believed to be reliable for general information purposes and is intended for Zurich clients and business partners. The information contained here may be useful to you or your enterprise when developing your own policies and procedures. The policies and procedures applicable to your enterprise should take into account the specific circumstances of your business and business environment, which is beyond the capacity of this podcast. Any and all information provided is not intended to constitute advice of any nature and is specifically not legal advice, and accordingly, you should consult with your own legal counsel. We do not guarantee the accuracy of this information presented or any results and further assume no liability in connection with this recording and the information provided therein. Moreover, Zurich reminds you that the information provided cannot be assumed to contain every acceptable safety and compliance procedure or that additional procedures might not be appropriate under the circumstances. The subject matter of this recording is not tied to any specific insurance product, nor will adopting these policies and procedures ensure coverage under any insurance policy. We encourage listeners to seek additional information from credible sources. Thank you.